You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just um, smirking at the fact here that uh, the amount of times that we've tried to do this uh, recording today, it's amazing. That's the benefit, isn't it? If we yeah, were live and we made the mistakes we did, I'd be uh, I'd be in a full-on sweat at this. <laughs> the beauty of recording these things, nobody knows the tons of mistakes that go on behind the scenes. We should have a blooper uh, session. Well, that would be fun. Yeah, that would really be fun. Do you have, really ta- do you have time to, to produce that, Alex? <laughs> uh, that's another. That could be a whole hours-long discussion. Yeah. But the short answer would be, I would love that opportunity. Well, then you'll have, <laughs> now that everything is recorded, everything is recorded. You've got lots of material. <laughs> and I guess I can probably stop saying that this show is being recorded because we're going to be doing this for quite a while, I think. Yeah, um, and uh, it's not yet known at this point in time when we will be returning to live programming. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, we have our great guests that continue to uh, provide us some great content. So We sure do. It's, um, it's been a really fantastic run. It really has been. And I think everyone's going to be very excited for, um, for the guests that are coming up um, over the summer. So I'm looking forward to the response. And um, you're going to love this conversation. So in case uh, people haven't really picked it up. We do the recording first, so I can tell you right away. Um, I know off uh, rate from the get-go that this has been a great um, a great interview. It's a very, very interesting topic. Uh, we're talking about uh, death doulas, and uh, it's really not something that we're familiar with in the Western world, so you're going to enjoy the, the conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it all. But before we get started on that, um, we had a, a guest on the show a while back, Dr. Tara Lynn Sell. We did talk about the anatomy of a panic attack. So yes. that, that was very interesting. But um, since then, I've actually been researching and um, teaching about mental health. And something interesting uh, popped up in, um, in one of our conversations and in some of the, the learning material that I thought I might pass along to you because it was really interesting to me um, uh, how the body regulates and gets back into balance after we have um, a hyperventilating attack, uh, which is uh, associated sometimes with panic attacks. So I wanted to, um, to talk to you about the anatomy of hyperventilating, or sort of not the anatomy of it, but the process of hyperventilating. 
and um, you know, probably the, the, the thing that you equate or a lot of people would equate with hyperventilating is putting a paper bag over your face and someone saying, breathe into the paper bag. Well, um, mm-hmm. a lot of us might not understand exactly why that uh, actually does work. So um, I thought it'd be a kind of a, an interesting thing to start off with. So hyperventilation is when you start to breathe very, very fast. And when you are in, in the process of breathing in a healthful way, there's a balance of the oxygen coming in and then the carbon dioxide um, being taken out of your system. And we call carbon dioxide sort of the, the waste gas, but it does have um, very important benefits in the body, but we're going to put that one aside for today. But what happens when you um, exhale too much of uh, the carbon dioxide and you're not and you're taking in too much of the oxygen, it, it um, causes an imbalance. And low carbon dioxide levels can lead to narrowing of blood vessels that supply blood to the brain. And this can make you feel lightheaded. It can give you sort of a a tangling in your your fingers. And in severe hyperventilation, it can cause um, unconsciousness. And stress is one of the, the key triggers for hyperventilating. Um, and what happens when you your body is trying to get back in balance? Because this is exactly what the body is meant to do. It's, it's meant to be in a homosta- uh, in homostasis or a homostatic uh, way is that um, the, the act of releasing too much carbon dioxide actually increases our serum pH. And our, our serum pH wants to be at a level, I think it's 7.2 or 7.4 or within that range. That's the range that is um, where we operate in. And if our blood, um, if our serum pH goes outside dramatically, uh, it can actually kill us. So the body will do everything that it can to bring us back into balance. So when you um, excrete too much carbon dioxide, it actually raises the pH. So carbon dioxide has a has a, a lower pH um, that uh, it's more acidic, so so to speak. So in response to this, mm-hmm. um, your body is going to try and balance back that pH. And what it will do is it will release. Um, things like magnesium from your body because magnesium has a higher pH. So in the releasing of magnesium, um, your your pH will then level off and become back in balance. And this release of magnesium, there are other things that are also involved, but this is why you can get muscle aches, um, can become very stiff after you hyperventilate. And um, people that have anxiety or are prone to hyperventilating episodes can be extremely low in magnesium. So I thought I was it was a really uh, interesting. That is interesting for sure. Don't always think about, but I'm, I'm glad you brought, brought it to our attention today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how the body will always work to be in balance and, um, and, and just, just knowing that, uh, it, you know, if you have experiences or if you are prone to, to breathe, you know, very, very quickly, you could, you know, if you're, 
and 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 not taking uh, and not and releasing far more carbon dioxide than oxygen coming in, you can be a little bit of uh, out of balance. And uh, magnesium, adding magnesium into your diet, and and people, many people that have um, anxiety or high levels of stress tend to be low in magnesium. So interesting connection there. But on to today's show, and as I mentioned, it's a really interesting uh, interview that I had with Alyssa Ackerman, and she is a deep soul and intuitive spirit to friends and her family, and she brings that work into her life as a death doula and massage therapist, empowering her community through conscious aging, dying, and grieving. She co-creates natural, peaceful, adventuresome, and intentional dying for for transitioning clients and supports family and loved ones throughout the process and beyond. Through her own connections to spirit, nature, and the physical body, she weaves together energetic and somatic healing designed specifically to the needs of each client. Uh, Her work is, is outstanding, and we have this Um, idea of death that is very unhealthy. And as we bring up in the interview, you know, people who are listening to us, our listeners at the Health Hub, have a vested interest, obviously, in, in their health. And listening to our show hopefully broadens your knowledge and gives you some really actionable steps to improve your health. But we do lack in cultivating health as we're transitioning out of this world and uh, very interesting points that Alyssa brings up in how to create a healthy dying experience. So we'll be talking about what the role of a death doula is, uh, is working with a death doula, uh, doula appropriate for everybody. And we're going to also be talking about what is wrong with the way that we view dying in our culture. So everybody, please stay with us and we will be back after Uh, a few minutes. You called me from the grave by name You called me out of all my shame I see the old is passed away The new has come now
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned uh, previously, our show is being recorded, but please do follow us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three destinations. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you. It's a really interesting topic, um, and honestly, I came upon you quite um, by accident in the whole role of, I mean, I certainly know what a doula is, but then talking about someone who is a death doula, well, that's sort of the very opposite end of the life spectrum from what I'm familiar with. How did you get involved in the transitioning from this life to the next as a career path? Yes, it's been a windy (laughs) way there. Um, But I, well, I grew up with medicine in my household and was always very interested in, in somatic work and the, and medicine, but um, not in, I knew I wouldn't go to medical school in the way my dad did and in the way many doctors do now. And so I kind of went off in a path towards art and environmental studies and um, but have maintained this fascination with, with the body and impermanence of life. I started meditating and, and um, learning about Buddhism in high school, and that kind of really opened me up initially to our mortality and mm-hmm. the, nature, uh, the nature of impermanence and the truth of impermanence within our lives. And it was... In the last, I, I suppose it was three years ago where I witnessed two grandmothers pass in a very short period of time from each other. And um, for me to witness the, the discomfort of the family and the struggle for all of us to, to witness suffering and each other's suffering and the woman who is dying, her suffering, Um, And to be present with that, that was really illuminating, as was kind of the medicalization of the dying process. So those things really began to spike my interest of like, whoa, how come this is so hard? How come we all feel so uncomfortable in this space? And, And what if dying isn't actually the end of something, but the opening to a whole, the opening to something new as birth is? Would you say that um, you have to have a spiritual belief in order to reap the benefits of having a doula by your side when you're transitioning? I don't. I would say no. You do not have to be of any religious affiliation or identify in any way religiously. Um, Doulas help fill a gap where they're where they can offer more spiritual care alongside of physical and emotional care but it does not have to be um spiritually oriented at all a doula may uh, some of the things that a a doula offers at uh, with someone who is dying include um vigil planning and legacy planning and supporting 
supporting the person and the family as they go through this process. And it can kind of, it can, in, um, it can include ceremony and ritual as much as that family and that person are interested in. So you must have a very broad scope of knowledge, not just about the dying process, but all of these other aspects of what is needed and what culturally we we think we need to do as part of this whole process. So you're not just holding hands. True. Yeah, we we doulas can come in at any stage and it's really lovely. Like what I really believe helps make a good death and makes the dying process go smoothly is is planning if possible. And so if a doula can come in earlier into the process of dying and can work with everyone to get really clear on what this person's wishes are and have, and so the whole family is clear and get really get a deep understanding of what the vigil is going to look like. Um, Does, does this dying person want to be read poetry or have candles or make sure that no one's coming in talking about the news and chitter chatter or like, what do we want that whole thing to look like? Um, so it's really beautiful if we can come in earlier in the process and, and it's not always possible, but um, there's kind of a whole array and it really is, is so dependent on the client and the family and the stage they're in. Do you have any medical training or do you need any medical training to be involved in this whole process? Uh, a death doula or end-of-life doula is, by definition, a non-medical person who's supporting the family and the dying person. A lot of doulas come from a medical background at some capacity, capacity though they're really not serving in that way. So my background is not medical. I am a massage therapist and craniosacral, I do craniosacral therapy. So I have a deep understanding of the body and the nervous system, but um, definitely not a medically trained person. Are you incorporating um, your other modalities when you are working with somebody or a family? Yes. And that's really the core of my work as a doula. Like I support conscious aging, dying and grieving. And I, my focus is coming to that through the body um, the somatic, the somatic work. So, uh, as someone is aging and approaching the dying stage, I will be more likely to offer gentle massage, but during the actual stages, like active dying, um, that is really much more hands-off and might include Reiki, uh, but is less hands-on, less massage because the person is transitioning. And then beyond the death, I offer Reiki, craniosacral therapy, and massage as a part of grieving, the grieving process for those that have just lost a loved one. Now, you mentioned the words conscious aging, which is an interesting phrase. So with that, are you implying that someone might do very well with having you work with them as they're getting older? Or, you know, are you, are you actually literally just stepping in as someone's right at the end of life? 
Great question. Um, many doulas step in right at the end of life, but I have been practicing as a massage therapist with hospice and my goal, like ideally someone comes, a client begins with working with me um, maybe right away when they're put on hospice or they're put in palliative care. So with hospice, that's assuming or suggesting that they have up to six months to live. So um, the earlier the better, even before hospice would be ideal, just because the embodiment that is necessary for self-awareness and for easing the fear and anxiety of approaching the end of life takes time and takes repetition and routine. Um, so yes, definitely through hospice, it would be ideal before hospice, but I work with people every week as soon as they join hospice and then um, through, all the way through dying. See, it's an interesting thought. You know, as, as a younger person, death doesn't really, it's not something that's most forward in our mind. But definitely, as you start to get older, as you start hitting 40 and 50, and, you know, there are slight shifts, and then I'm assuming into 60s and 70s where you are noticing more and more shifts, the thoughts would, would focus more on the end of life. And just as you're speaking, and we'll get into sort of our westernized thought of, of death, it would seem to me something very beneficial if as soon as those thoughts start to become an impediment in your life, you know, a fear-based as opposed to just sort of a transient thought that, you know, we know we're all going to die at some time. Having somebody like you step in before there's a seriousness, before there's this, um, you know, almost a finite time of death might be very comforting through the aging process so that you're not working in a short period of time trying to change the mentality of, of, a, of a person who is going to die more uh, imminently than somebody else. Definitely. And um, yeah, the Dalai Lama speaks towards it as like he's preparing, like he's preparing for his death. Like we're using life to prepare for the dying process and for moving on. Um, so the more I believe that the more we bring into our daily life, the understanding, like deep truth of impermanence and change and t the just the temporary, how temporary things are in a way that's not fearful and sad in a way that we aren't attaching to, um, you know, what is good like this, this is pleasant. I want more of this. This is unpleasant. I want less of that. The more we can just, flow and see how it's all shifting, the easier it will be as we age and as we go into dying. Yeah. So there's two really different streams here. Um, and it, it really has to do with two different outlooks on sort of the role of death, whether it is just an end of life. And there are many who, who go to their grave with this notion and where this is a transition, which I think is a, a lovely word, a transition into sort of a, a different being, 
or a different state or a different world. And you're, are you able to work with people who flow down either pathway? Yes. Yes. And I just, I observe first and I know, I notice and learn about where they're at and I'm thoughtful about what I bring from my own beliefs and spiritual practice into that dynamic. And that's really common for doulas. Like no doula is going to come in and, and preach their own beliefs. They just mm-hmm. are really going to meet you. Um, so, yeah. How many, how many doulas would you say, death doulas? Would, where, where are you from, first of all? I'm in Portland, Oregon. You're in Portland. And how many death doulas in the United States? Do you have a, an, a, an idea of the number of death doulas that um, are qualified to do what you're doing? I do not have a number. It's not a ton, but the interest is huge. Mm-hmm. A, lot of people are, a lot of people are reaching out and asking, how do I become a death doula? Mm-hmm. And they're wanting to serve in that way. And it's right now, like the answer to that is right now, there are many trainings that exist. Um, there is no certifying, there's no certified board or um, kind of governing board, but there are multiple different kinds of trainings that, that help people get there. And my biggest advice and my biggest training was <clears throat> beginning to volunteer with hospice as a companion volunteer. Mm-hmm. that in and of itself, just by learning to be with death and dying and, and suffering and not try and fix it or change it and just be, bear witness has been the biggest um, step towards this career. How much of an emotional impact ha- watching somebody pass away – I imagine that the bulk of your work is with the elderly. Um, Perhaps you have other, other younger people, but how much, and we can talk about that actually, but how much of an impact uh, or training emotionally did you have to get through before you got to this point where when you're watching somebody pass away, you're not uncomfortable yourself? Great question. Um, the hospice training that I did initially was a, a three-day training, and it was very much oriented on that. And a big, big piece for me was this idea that we came back to, and I still come back to every time I visit with someone, um, which is you are the medicine. And so when you walk in, you're not trying to do anything or change anything, but your presence is the thing that you're doing first. Um, so embodying that, it has been really, really big for me. I personally have a, a meditation practice, and I spend a lot of time in nature. Those are two really restorative things for me, as well as dance and music. And I've created my own ritual before I visit with, with clients in terms of like the, what I will do the night before, which kind of includes prayer and song and um, so that I can really come in in a full way. But that's a huge piece of this work. And there's great teachers. Um, John Halifax and Frank Ostasowski are two of my teachers who've really helped me create a, a plan of self-care and a way of not being overwhelmed by empathy, being compassionate, but not overwhelmed and maintaining balance. 
You have to be empathetic to a certain point, though, don't you? Yes, definitely. And that can be very emotional and taxing on somebody. Empaths can very much feel and take in uh, the emotions of the people that they're with. Now, are, are you um, with people mainly as they're passing away or are you, do you step back from that situation? Are you preparing the individual and the family together and then you step back or are people inviting you to be with them and are family members inviting you to be with them through the whole process right up until the death? Yeah. The invitation is what well, is often to be there throughout the entire process. Okay. Um, so I am visiting leading up to the dying process. And then as someone is dying, I will be there with them and their family. And the care looks different in that, you know, I will not be as hands-on just because we want the, like dying is a labor. It's, there's a labor to it and there's a release that has to happen. And if, if we, we as a family and, loved ones are around and holding and try, like there's some amount of holding this person here while he or she may be trying to release from us and this earth. And um, so it shifts as someone goes into active dying, but I will be there throughout the process. I also am a volunteer with end of life choices, Oregon. So medical aid in dying. And so I am attending planned deaths in that way as well. Fascinating. Alyssa, we're going to take a quick break, and I want to come back and talk to you right about this point about labor, death, and the work of dying. But we're just going to take a couple of minutes. Everybody, we will be back in a minute. In this time, of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe we believe in God the Father We believe in Jesus Christ We believe in the Holy Spirit And He's given us new life We believe in the crucifixion We believe that He conquered death We believe in the resurrection And He's coming back again We believe So
Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Alyssa Ackerman, and I want to rate pick up where we left off because this is um, a very interesting point. You said that the act of dying is work. It is labor. And just, you know, a personal thing I just want to add here to sort of kick this off. Um, My dad passed away and we were all there with him when he passed away. And you could see him holding on. You could see him not wanting to let go. And it's tough on the family, and as I imagine, it's probably tough on the person dying. So this, this labor of dying, is this something that you are trying to prepare the person for? And can you prepare a dying person for this so that when, you know, in our mind, they're not really conscious, that they can let go. They're, they're almost practicing to let go ahead of time and that they actually can do this when they're in their last breaths. That's exactly right. That's exactly the goal of um, bringing into our awareness throughout our lives the impermanence. Peace is is um, coming to terms with that. And so, yes, dying as an active thing. It's not something that's happening to us. It's something we are active participants in. And so... Uh, um, the more we can practice like allowing and releasing throughout our lives and, and equanimity, no matter what good or bad comes into our life, can we allow it to come and then allow it to leave? And, and just like watching ourselves in our day-to-day life of how are we with endings? Like, are, do we stay and finish the whole movie? Do we finish the whole song before we change the song to the next one we want to hear? Like in small, subtle ways, noticing how we handle endings in our life in a, in a conscious way and, you know, putting a little more attention or love into that as we get older so that when it is our time to be transitioning or as we begin aging, we're we're more comfortable with the ideas of that and, and the act of it and, and us as a family supporting someone. um, That's a huge part of our work too. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we, when we deny that this person is dying and we deny death and we're 
when we're doing that, it's really hard for the dying person to be allowed, a air quote, allowed, but like be allowed or be held in the dying process. And we can do that, can't we? We can make a loved one hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just see so much opportunity because, you know, you're talking about practicing for transition and, you know, death is such a dirty word for us, but this ability to practice and to be able to uh, tell your family that you're okay with things and to have them understand, we never know when death is coming to, to greet us. So it just seems to me to be such an invaluable lesson and outlook that we can cultivate starting at any age. I, I'm not sure why in our society we, we, we hate this whole notion of finality and passing on. And it, it frightens everybody. Yes. It, it, does, it, does it frighten you still? Yes. Okay. I, so much. I think part of me getting into the work was a deep, a deep undefined fear of losing my dad, who I am so close to. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was like some unconscious part of me that was like, I need to start preparing for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and same, losing the ones we love, but I, there's no way to be totally prepared. It's going to be really hard, but our culture is so focused on the ascent like building up a a small child into a human and like all the potential that a a child has and then we kind of uh, we attach dignity and integrity to being able to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and so it becomes a question of dignity and integrity as we have to ask for help and lean on each other more like um, I don't believe those things are actually tied in. I think that the un, the unmaking of the human is as important as the making of the human, but it's terrifying for us, and our culture doesn't really hold space for us to do that um, comfortably. Well, why not? Like, why are we so different? Um, you know, in the Western world, the whole our whole outlook on aging is negative. Our whole outlook on the elderly is negative. Um, but it's not that way in a large portion of the world. So why are we this way versus the way you are trying to train people to be? Is it socially mandated by us? I think there's a few pieces. One big piece for one big piece I believe is the is that so many more of us live in cities instead of in nature and we we know like when we're in nature when we walk in the forest uh we see death everywhere and we see how death nourishes life um in a really strong way and the word that I use a lot is the word of senes- is senescence. And mm-hmm. senescence means the deterioration in aging. Um, and so like in nature, senescence and the wisdom and beauty of senescence is obvious. And, and it's felt in a really powerful way. And when we live in, the, in rhythm with nature or on land and with creatures who, who like horses and dogs and like farm animals, we see the the cycle of life much more than when we're in the cities. Um, so that's one piece, I believe. I also, um, I think the medicalization of death 
And there's a great book called Being Mortal, which is highly recommended. He really speaks to how um, because so many people are dying in hospitals, doctors have become the ones who are walking people through the dying stage, and they don't have training in doing that. Doctors are taught to repair health and to r restore balance and keep people alive, which is a great charge, but it's not the same as supporting someone who is dying um, and moving in that direction. So um, those are a few of the pieces that come to mind in terms of why we, why we do it. Actually, one more is the, invisibil like the invisibility of it. In the Western world, we're more likely to call someone else. When, when there's a death, the body is picked up and taken away and dressed and prepared, and then we see them, and then they go, then they're buried or they go away. And the family is so rarely a participant in that care. And I, I really believe that the more we can confront death and the more that we can care for our dying, the deeper healing, the, the deeper healing and the um, more powerful, like the more powerful lessons I believe can come. Can we look at um, our death as nurturing for those we've left behind? Is there, you, you talk about nature um, and, you know, we can see that, you know, as things deteriorate and trees deteriorate and, and the ground is, is absorbing them and nutrients are being taken away. And we can kind of make that parallel of, of how things can flourish from something that, you know, a, a plant or an animal has, or more the plants world has died. And we can see that we can see a nourishment cycle, but is there such a thing in the death of animals and people uh, that we can point to as, nourishing in our world? Y yes. I really, really believe that our dying, every person's process of aging and dying is a huge part of their legacy. So when my grandma, she was 96 and she was aging and dying and, and all of our family was involved in that process. And we witnessed that and and felt such deep sadness and grief and were able to come together as a family and support each other in that way and, and kind of like walk with her through that process. So she has now touched and taught all of us what death and dying can look like and feel like. And, and so the way that we walk through our own dying is, it's like such an important lesson for those we leave behind. And, and even the messy, really, really hard deaths, um, there's no, it's not wrong or bad, but the more visible it can be and the more, by which, I, by which I just mean, instead of isolating ourselves and saying, I don't want anyone to see me in this stage, like the more we can allow our loved ones to support us, the more we can touch them and leave a, a legacy that will support them as they, continue with loss and continue with, you know, just the impermanence of life. Alyssa, that's beautiful. The legacy that you leave when you're dying, the way you die can leave a legacy. That's, um, that's a profound thing to say. And I'm sure uh, most of us haven't looked at a uh, passage that way. It's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a beautiful thing that you're bringing to the process. Now, are, are there people that working with a death doula is not appropriate for, or is this open to everybody? 
It is open to everyone. There's some, um, it's helpful if that person has a terminal diagnosis. They don't have to, but sometimes there's question of, of whether, of how sick someone may be. And, and you can work with them earlier on just in terms of acceptance and, and peacefulness with, with dying, like dying as a part of life. And that can come in at any stage. So really, yes, a death doula could be called in at any stage, though they're probably going to offer the most help or, um, log like logistical help and planning. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, really at any stage. Mm -hmm. And and I really, really encourage that, actually, uh, just the planning, having the whole family on board with what someone's wishes are, even at a younger age, is really, uh, it makes it so much easier for everybody. You may be a great support. Um, you know, you can bring both worlds together, the families and support and the people who are, you know, um, the loved ones of the person that's dying. Are you ever called upon by um, the person who's dying to sort of intervene and pass on their wishes to the family? That would be a really, that is a really good use for a death doula if, if someone is, having a hard time communicating that or wants other, you know, wants that to come through a certain way. And I haven't personally done too much of that, though we do legacy projects as, as death doulas. One thing that we offer is help in planning legacy projects. And those can, those can be things that the family's involved in or not. So the dying person may have a private project that they want to leave for their family. And in that case, we would work individually with them. And sometimes it really involves the whole family. So um, yeah, it's a really good, that's a really good reason to call in a death doula. Have you ever worked with a very young person? I worked with, I've worked at some capacity with someone who was in their 20s, but not all the way through. Um, that was an extreme case. Uh, and then I worked with someone who was in her early or in her 40s that was really hard that was um actually more as a volunteer for hospice sitting sitting with her um as a volunteer instead of as a doula but but i can offer some of the same things mm -hmm. and and i was sitting with her and i was also sitting at the same time with a woman who was 103 who lived mm -hmm. you know one block away and they were both on hospice and it's Really, really beautiful to witness, interesting to witness how different people spend this time. Like when you've been told you have six months or less to live, how might you spend your time? Like that question is something really interesting and it's so different for people. But yeah, mm -hmm. that, was, that was hard to sit with her. She was very young. Mm -hmm. I imagine. Now, once, uh, who generally hires you? Would it be the person who's um, ill or, or close to death? Or are you finding more that it's the family or the loved ones that are looking for your help? At this stage, it's been more often the family. Mm -hmm. um, just there's a kind of an awareness question or gap in this space. Like, it's common that you would call someone in the community to help support you and your family through 
a big transition like this. But we have kind of isolated, we've separated these different roles. And so now there's not, there's not yet a deep understanding that death doulas even exist or what they are. Mm-hmm. And so I am trying to increase, and, and you are by having me here, <laughs> trying to <laughs> increase awareness around this offering so that we can support our dying in this way. And yeah, most often it's been family members calling, calling us in. Yeah, well, I can see why the awareness isn't as great um, here. It's just we our whole outlook on on death is is just so unhealthy, um, and I'm no better than the rest for sure. But I've certainly read about how other cultures revere uh, the elderly, and and you know their passing is is something uh, of a joy to behold, and. I think it's it it doubles down on how difficult it is for us here because most times we're not viewing death that way. But if, if now can you even offer services because there aren't a lot of people like you that are available to us? Are you able to uh, help people online, or is this definitely a tactile thing that has to be experienced by people? There's a lot of support that can happen online and through video, um, just in terms of planning and and emotional support and spiritual support if that's the requ- if that's part of the request. Mm-hmm. So yes, a lot of that can happen at a distance. Um, I really really love to bring in the somatic work, the body work, um, especially with. With aging, like before someone is actively dying, um, and with the grief work, like it feels actually really, really essential that we we help process grief through the body. So even if it wasn't, even if it's not the death doula that you hired because that that you're working with them from a distance, um, getting massage or craniosacral therapy in your community would be a really, really powerful way to help support yourself through that process. Mm-hmm. Now, are you often working with the families after um, their loved one has passed away? Do you find that's happening? Yes, and that is the most okay. powerful work, um, and that is something I really, really love when I, can, um, when I can support the dying person. And and ideally, the family is in the room. It's really strong if if I can be in there working with this person and the family is with me in intention and awareness and meditation or, and just like fully present, that's really, really strong. And then after the death, I do continue to work with those grieving and that I feel is such a powerful tool for Mm -hmm. grievers. Um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, is a really beautiful book talking about how the body holds on to trauma. And he's talking about veterans in this book and all the research around PTSD and how that's held in the physical body. But a death of a loved one is also a trauma in the same way. And our our bodies like hold on to that and there's memory of that. And if we don't if we don't come in through the body as like in in a as an accompanying, if we don't come into it through the body, while we also are doing the emotional processing of it, I feel that the healing is limited or it takes longer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and coming into the self-awareness and the intro reception, like being able to really sense what's going on in the physical body instead of distracting away from it or kind of numbing the negative, the, what we would call negative or painful sensations out, um, the more we can the more we can actually grieve and actually move, move grief and, and grief is, is a form of love and a form of praise. And because we grieve, we grieve because we've loved. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You're absolutely right. And, and, and emotions are meant to be felt. And, yes. you know, part of the, the word of emotion is motion, and they're not supposed to be stagnant, and the health of us is allowing them to flow through. So we're not talking about here you coming in and telling people don't grieve. We're talking about how to grieve. And I think, you know, we need to broaden the concept of our total health to incorporate healthy dying whether you are the person that is dying or you're the person who is experiencing the death of a loved one, healthy dying is important. And I think just because you exist and because you are in demand and you are employed, I think people are becoming more and more aware of that. So you are doing a great service for people who are working so hard during their life to attain health they would, should complete their life in a healthy state. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to have somebody like you. Um, and um, I, I appreciate the time that you've given us on the show to come and explain this new concept to a lot of us. Thanks so much for having me. I feel really honored to, to support people in this way and in this stage of life. Oh, thank you. And how can people get a hold of you if they are interested in finding out more or engaging you um, for their own lives? Um, my, I have a website. My personal website is alyssaroseheelingarts.com. Okay. And I can, uh, all of my contact information is there. So phone, email, um, that's a really good place to go. I also have a website that is a resource for end-of-life care and a practitioner directory for end-of-life care. And that's That's called Soulful Senescence. And so it's um, soulfulsenescence.com. Perfect. Yeah. And I, I will, what we will do as I do with all of our guests is when the podcast comes up, um, all of your information will be on that. So Alyssa, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.